following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Wow, you can be seated. My, my, what a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord today. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. What a pleasure it is for us to be here. I don't know whether you guys know it or not. I know you already do. This is probably the greatest church in the United States of America. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And every single time that we get to come and be with you all, we are so blessed. I think we leave, I know we do, more blessed than, uh, than us having been here. And I love the new building. How many, <laughs> isn't that great? <laughs> For everyone who's had a part, we were over here yesterday and there was groups cleaning and working so diligently and thank you all of people in the parking lots this morning, all the volunteers and the greeters and people who, uh, it makes it your job and you take it as your job to make people feel wanted and welcome. Thank you so much and we do and uh, I am delighted to be with my lovely wife. She's my better half and my best friend and Buddy, we traveled the world together, and uh, man, I am blessed. If you could see her over there, you would think he's got to be rich as he can be to get a girl like that. Amen. But uh, I'm not. It was just the grace of God. What can I say? Well, open your Bible today to perhaps the, the most familiar passage of Scripture that, that I could read to you out of John chapter number 3. Now, we have been, uh, with, as a network, we have been studying the Gospel of John for the last four weeks together. And so I can't preach out of something else. You know, it's, it's all up in me right now. And I, I love the Gospel of John. How many have ever read something and it just get a hold of you in a fresh way, even if you'd read it many times before? And that was our prayer. Lord, give us a fresh revelation. Give us a fresh touch from heaven. So if it's okay with you today, I'm just going to share a few of the gleanings that the Lord has been uh, opening our heart to during this study, this intensive study of the Gospel of John. And I want to land in John chapter 3, uh, and I want to begin reading. And I've taken a title today of my message, The True Story Behind John 3.16. The True Story Behind John 3.16. There's always a story behind the story. Behind every what and every how, there's normally a strong why. There's a reason. You know, why is the first question. I don't know about your kids, but the first question the kids asked me when I was seeing those children go and develop is why. It's encoded on the heart of man. I believe God did that for a reason. The why question. Words can be misspoken, illustrations misapplied. But the motive of the heart, the reason, the why, always tells the story. So let's read together John 3.16. But I want to read just a little before that because the truth is, if you just take John 3.16 out of context, you miss the proper interpretation of the passage. And so I, I, we tell students all the time that context matters. And so let's read verse number 14 and then I'll take you through verse number 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, in, the, in one translation, perhaps a better translation, it says it this way, for God loved the world in this way. For God loved the world in this way. 
The so much is not about a, a quantity as it is a quality. How desperate was God's love driving him to do something? For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For, this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but through the wor- that through the world, through him, it might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful congregation. We thank you, Lord, for the worship that's filled this house. Lord, it's so moving as we worship the King together. And Lord, we just pray, God, that as we read these scriptures and open them, Lord, that you would open our hearts so we would receive. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Somebody say amen three times. Amen, 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 amen. There's not a more famous verse in the entire Bible. Almost everyone knows it, saints and sinners alike. It's displayed on billboards and T-shirts and bumper stickers and even worn in the face paint, in the black face paint under the eyes of professional athletes at sporting events. But John 3.16 lives up to its billing. It's as simple as it is powerful. It's as simple as it is powerful. And it works in whatever form it's presented. John 3.16 has been called the gospel in a nutshell, the one-verse Bible. And how many found that to be so? If you didn't have any other verse, you could tell somebody. They could get saved, sanctified, and filled with John 3.16. Can I get an amen? The highest mountains of theology, the greatest expression of humanity, the purest demonstration of divinity, and the simplest revelation of love are contained in its 25 words. It's powerful. It's earth-shaking. Entire continents have been shaken simply by the foundational truth of John 3.16. There's a lot of interesting things that have happened associated with John 3.16 as well. Let me tell you an interesting story. How many like interesting stories? So go back with me in time just a little bit. The year is 2009. It's the college football national championship game. Some of you probably watched it. Uh, I didn't. Arkansas wasn't playing, so... uh, No, I'm just kidding. I I would never watch a national championship if I didn't. But I watched the game. A a fellow named Tim Tebow, a Christian and celebrated quarterback, was getting ready to play. And before the game, he felt led to change the scripture. He had always written uh, Philippians 4.13 under his eyes. His coach was Urban Meyer. And he tells the story about how he went to Urban and said, I feel like for the national championship game, God wants me to change the verse. And Urban's a bit superstitious. He said, no, don't do it. That's what got us here, man. Don't change anything. <laughs> but he did. He put John 3:16 under his eyes for that game. It's interesting because during the game, 94 million people Googled John 3:16. And the story gets a bit more radical than that. As a matter of fact, as it was reported by Christianity Today several years ago, three years later, after the national championship game, three years to the day, 
he had gone pro and he was playing, I believe it was for the Denver Broncos and they were playing the Steelers in a playoff game, three years to the day. And as they were playing, they miraculously won the game in overtime with a game-ending touchdown pass that Tim Tebow threw 80 yards on the last play, obviously in overtime, to win the game. And he again had John 3.16 under his eyes. After the game, the public relations department for the Broncos and also their stats people pulled him inside and said something miraculous happened. He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you actually threw for 316 yards in the game. The average, listen, the average yards per reception was 31.6. The time of possession was 31 minutes and six seconds. Your yards per carry were 3.16. And the Nielsen ratings for that game was one of the largest in history, 31.6%. Come on, somebody. <laughs> every, it gets deeper. Every stat that was related to Tebow's performance that night had 316 in its numbers, and over 90 million people Googled John 316 that night. And on that night, on every social media platform, it was the number one trending topic. John 3.16. Tell me God can't do miracles. I'm going to tell you that's a miracle. Simply amazing. Purely powerful. But what was it? What was it that precipitated such a powerful supercharged verse? Well, there's a real story behind that verse. Jesus met a, a teacher of the law, a man named Nicodemus. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus had heard of all that Jesus was doing. Maybe he'd witnessed some of the miracles. We don't know fully what happened, but Nicodemus is filled with questions. And there have been debates as to the sincerity. Was he coming as a spy for the Sanhedrin? Nicodemus was a member of the ruling court of Israel at the time, the Sanhedrin, a, a blend, if you will, between the Supreme Court and a religious court. And there were about 70 members and Nicodemus was one of them. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, we tend when we read the scripture to think that everybody was either a Pharisee or a Sadducee. That's not the case. There were only a few thousand Pharisees in Israel during the days of Jesus. And Nicodemus was the creme de la creme. He was the teacher of teachers. He was the rabbi of rabbis. He was the man. And he hears of Jesus and all these going on. He asks for a meeting. And it's interesting because Jesus reveals such powerful truth in that encounter. And out of that conversation emerges the most famous passage in the Bible, at least the New Testament, John 3.16. But it's the passages prior that really helps you understand the true story, the story behind the story of John 3.16. And they're contained in the passages that I've read you. Let me go back through them again with you for just a moment. John 3, 14, as Moses, this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus, this teacher of the law. So I want to set the stage for you. I want you to wrap your mind. It's a midnight encounter. It's been a clandestine visit because Nicodemus had a lot to lose and Jesus accommodates him. They meet in the middle of the night. Nicodemus must have had all kinds of questions. He must have had all kinds of wonderings about what this Jesus, this street preacher who had begun this movement and they were replete. There was no shortage of street preachers in Israel during this time but there was nobody else that had been able to speak to the eyes of the blind and them open and 
to speak to the lame and them get up off their mats and go home. No one else had been rumored to have spoken to dead people and them be raised from the dead. Nicodemus wants to know the story. What is, what's going on here? And it's interesting to me that Jesus begins the whole new birth saga, the whole idea. Nicodemus, the law can't produce a spiritual birth. This is my paraphrase. The law can't do what the spirit can do. And unless a person is born of the natural birth, the natural womb of a woman, the water, and then to be born of the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? How can this be? Can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus knew full well that he was not talking about a natural birth. As a matter of fact, he should have known the new birth concept because it's all over the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah said, I'll put a brand new heart inside of you. And the prophet spoke of a moment that God would transform a person instantaneously. It was prophetic. Jesus was amazed that Nicodemus didn't understand it. And he said, you mean you are a teacher? of the law, you ought to know this Nicodemus. But he said, let me make it simple for you. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, in a better translation, it's in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We read that same phrase almost in the next verse, but we don't realize that Jesus is equating the new birth salvation to the simplicity of how God delivered Israel when they had rebelled and sinned against him in the Old Testament. Let me tell you that story because it's an interesting illustration. You see, Israel had rebelled against God. They were wandering in the wilderness and God was providing manna for them and providing water when they needed it and providing meat to eat. And, and you know, they got tired of it. It wasn't their favorite food, but how many know when you're in the desert without a grocery store, whatever works out, if it's food, will be okay. Amen. But they had gotten bored with the blessings of the Lord. They had gotten rebellious and comfortable in their religious experience with God. I mean, this symbiotic relationship with God providing for them and God feeding them, they'd gotten bored with it and they complained and they said to Moses, which is their normal retort, oh, we could have just stayed in Egypt and not had to endure this. Why didn't you just, was there not enough food there? Was there not enough water there? Why didn't you just leave us there? And this time they said it one too many times. So Numbers 21 records the story. The scripture says that God sent serpents among them. The Bible calls them fiery serpents. Uh, most scholars believe that what that means is when they bit you, there was this intense burning sensation that ultimately would lead to death. It wasn't a pleasant experience. And God in judgment sent serpents among them. They were bitten and they began to suffer and begin to die. They go to Moses and say, we're sorry, Moses, that we did this. We really didn't mean to step so far out of line. Will you go to God and will you talk to him and see if he will work out some sort of plan that we could be redeemed and we could be saved and we could have the stop of, of all this suffering? And Moses did. And God said, here's what you do, Moses. I want you to make a serpent. I want you to make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and then lift it among the people. And whenever they have been bitten and they're suffering because of their rebellion, because of their sin, 
when they are suffering and before they die, if they will look to that serpent on the pole, then miraculously and instantaneously, the venom that's working in their body will be healed and they will be delivered. They didn't have to know all the cucumins of the Jewish faith. They didn't have to know all the, the Ten Commandments backwards and forwards. They didn't have to put their name on a membership roll. Are y'all in the room when they didn't have to do anything? All they had to do in desperation was find the snake. And if they could find the snake, they would be healed. Hallelujah. Isn't it amazing that Jesus speaking to a doctor of the law said, you make it too complicated. You make it too difficult. You see, it was never designed to be that hard. Here's some quick observations. If you're jotting a note down or two with your digital device or in the old analog way with a pen and paper, what do I see here? Number one, the serpent spot was the effects of sin and rebellion in people producing a burning death. And can I tell you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, every one of us in this room have been bitten by that same snake. The Bible says it this way, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there is none righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us have been bitten by the serpent of rebellion, have been bitten by the serpent of lust, have been bitten by the serpent of doing things our own way in, in, in stark contrast to the love and the grace of God. Can I get an amen? Any imperfect people in the room that say, that's me, I raise both my hands, I qualify. And then we know the pain and the suffering associated with our bad decisions. The second thing that I see in this passage is their only hope was in their obedience to God's solution. Their only hope. I don't want to offend anyone today. I don't want to offend them in this building in our online audience, but I do want to declare in gentleness and faith that there is not a hundred ways that you can get to God. There is not a hundred different ways that you can find peace with God. There is only one way. There is one name given under heaven whereby men might be saved. You can be a good Hindu. You can be like you can what you fill in the religious blank. You can be a good person. That's not enough for you to be saved because there's venom that's working in your body that is causing a burning suffering in your life. There is only one remedy. There is only one solution, and that solution is the name of Jesus Christ and the blood of the cross. I'm sorry if you disagree, but I stand on the authority of God's word. And I believe it. Pastor said it. Number three, the serpent solution. That's really what John 3.16 is. We could title it that way, the serpent solution. The serpent solution. And they were miraculously healed. Number four, there were no other requirements or added demands for deliverance. They simply had to look at the serpent on the pole and they were given life. By explaining this to Nicodemus, Jesus unveils in its earliest and perhaps simplest form the doctrine of the cross. Jesus tells Nicodemus that as it was with Moses' serpent being hung on a pole as a remedy for sick and dying people who had been afflict, afflicted by their own sin so must it be with the Son of Man who would be lifted up from the earth as a deliverance for all who would believe in him. And those who believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Jesus tells Nicodemus, the son of man did not come to make you better. He came to make you over. The blood of Jesus is not a vitamin that improves your quality of life. It's not a supplement. The blood of Jesus is an antidote for what's killing you. He did not come, Nicodemus, to add religion to your glutted rules and regulations. Uh, He didn't come to make you feel better about yourself. He didn't come to do that. He came to take your place, pay your debt, and take your punishment. That's what he did. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. There is a remedy. Look to the snake. You don't have to suffer the burning agony of your own bad decision. You can look to the snake. In that midnight encounter, Jesus and Nicodemus met grace and law, met in sharp contrast, and the heart of God was revealed in living color. This is not some theologian's uh, renderings. This is not some theologian's attempt to explain or interpret. These words are from Jesus Christ himself. He is the greatest theologian. God did not send his son Nicodemus into the world to condemn the world. The venom of sin producing death had already done that. The consequences of our bad decision had already brought condemnation in our life. It wasn't God's purpose. And the law, Nicodemus, is powerful to change the heart. It wasn't God's intent. Yes, God gave the law, and yes, it's spiritual, but it wasn't God's intent to bring remedy through the law. The law was simply a diagnosis. All the law was designed to do is explain to men why they were dying and suffering. It was never designed to bring wholeness and health and help. It only explained to us why death reigned over our lives. God didn't send the son to do that. The law diagnosed it. The shame of our bad actions brought condemnation. God had a different mission in sending his son. That mission was to bring health and wholeness and instantaneously healing. Amen. In the same way that Moses' serpent on a stick. All right, let me give you some takeaways as we get ready to land the plane. Why the serpent? Some of you are going to leave today and say, that brother equated Jesus Christ to a snake. Well, first of all, I'm not the first one that did it. And I I have it on good authority that Jesus did it himself, so. Why the serpent? The serpent in the wilderness looked like what was killing the people. Wow. Put the two together. Moses, make a serpent. Well, wait a minute, God. They're dying from the snake bite. Aren't they going to be afraid of the serpent on the pole? He said, it's important that what's on the pole looks like what was killing them. Why did God become a man? Why did he leave the portals of heaven and the glory and the vestibule of his presence and put on the robe of flesh that Paul would later say he emptied himself in the kinesis of Christ. He emptied himself of his reputation and his divine qualities and prerogatives and took upon himself the flesh and humbled himself even to death. 
Why did he do that? For the same reason. As surely as the people had to see the serpent and it be a representation of what was killing them, God became a man in the flesh so that as he was lifted up on the pole, we could see that he was dying in our place. You see, Jesus didn't just die for you. He died as you. He didn't just die for you. He died as you. Paul said it this way in Corinthians, for the love of Christ compels us, for we reckon thus, if one died for all, then all died. The sinner you, the suffering sinner you that's been bitten by the viper of sin and now is struggling with the pain and anguish and agony, that person died on the cross with Jesus. And when we see him in his flesh broken and marred, we see that blood dripping from his feet. We realize that as the serpent was lifted up, all we must do is cast our gaze on him in faith. Three takeaways. Are you ready? Number one, man has a common disease called sin. Like the serpent's bite, the venom of this disease is killing us. Number two, the law was God's diagnosis. But thanks be unto God, on that night, Jesus unpacked the truth story behind John 3.16 that God had planned a common deliverance like the serpent on the pole. Jesus Christ is God's provision for your healing and your deliverance. Stand with me, would you? Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you'd say, Brother Brassfield, I need that healing. I feel the venom of this world in my blood. Well, I've got good news to you for you today. If you will but cast your eyes upon the provision, the serpent solution, if you will cast your eyes on him, he will heal you and deliver you and you can have a brand new life today. Pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I receive your provision I receive your grace. I receive you as my healing. And my eyes are on you. I receive the blessing of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Therefore, today, I am brand new. A fresh start is my portion. In Jesus' name.